Hi, my name is Julie. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. The word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Mary Lindsay, and the New Testament reading today is found in Ephesians 4:32, and in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, and therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. I'm Jim Lindsay, and thank you so much for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Stay standing as we pray, if you would. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord, that we would hear your voice. And open our hearts, Lord, that we would love and serve and follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the middle of a short three-week series on, uh, really, on relationships, and it's based on the many one-another verses that show up in the New Testament. And so there's, there's all these different encouragements or injunctions to serve one another, love one another, and, and we've picked three to go through. Last week we did, be kind to one another. And maybe you left last week thinking, okay, great, be kind, that's great. In fact, then, if everybody's listening to the sermon, then I should, I should encounter these other people during the week, and they should be the kindest, most wonderful people ever. And then your hopes came crashing down when you realized, oh, Christians are mean too. And you realize that, wait a second, what is it that makes Christian community Christian, I mean, I thought it was this whole thing, be kind to one another, and we talked about the kindness of God, and shouldn't that make a difference in our lives? Well, it does. But this week is maybe the most explosive and most important one another phrase of all. It is, forgive one another. Our text this morning is from Ephesians 4, verse 32. We'll read it again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And the reason I think forgiveness is the most important, most explosive of all the one another phrases is because it's what lies at the heart of Christian community. You might say, well, you know, other communities, we've learned to do this, we've learned to serve, we've learned to help, we've learned to do such and such. But eventually, if you hang out with people long enough, guess what's going to happen? They're going to bother you. They're going to offend you. 
They're going to wrong you. In fact, one of the things about life is that the joy and the pain of life comes in relation to others. And so sometimes an, an, an okay job can be so much sweeter because of the people that you're working with, right? And, and maybe a long road trip can be so much fun because of who's in the car with you. But the flip side is also true. A job that would have been fun is really a drag because of your boss or your coworkers. And a short little trip to go get something to eat could have been a nice thing to do on a sunny Sunday afternoon, except for the people that decided to join us at Chipotle. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it is relationships that make life either sweeter or more difficult. And as it turns out, forgiveness is required. And so I want to suggest to you that what lies at the heart of Christian community is not behavior per se, because we're going to fail one another. But what lies at the heart of Christian community is the way we forgive one another. And that's what we want to unpack and wrestle with today. Now, right away, when I say the word forgiveness, some of you are like, I got to get out of here. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to do this. This is just going to make, you know, make me think of things. And I want to very carefully and pastorally say this. There are some situations that a sermon cannot adequately deal with, okay? There are some hurts. There are some wounds. There are some um, uh, trauma that really require very long, very deep, very personal conversations with counselors and with others that that take a long time to finally come to this place. And so I don't want to pretend that a sermon is going to be the answer to all of this and that, hey, everyone, just forgive and all the trauma or abuse or or painful situations in your life will all of a sudden be, voila, you're, you're better. No, it's not like that. In fact, I want to even clarify that what I, much of what I want to say today, though it does apply, I think, to all situations, my focus today is going to be more towards the middle of the spectrum rather than the fringes of the spectrum, meaning the situations that are extraordinarily difficult or painful or because of, because of the details of it. That's, that's not what I, I want to have in mind this morning. I want to think more towards the middle if we would draw a circle around the experiences that are common to most of us, if not common to all of us, the kinds of relational wrong and hurt that really happens every week with friends, with roommates, with classmates, with coworkers. Those are the, that's the place I want to really focus on today. Does that make sense? Because, and I say that out of respect and, and, and care for the other situations that are particularly tender that a sermon can't properly and adequately addressed. I, I, I want you to know that as the sort of the caveat up front so that you're not like, whoa, that doesn't apply to this experience. Okay, okay. But let's, let's move a little bit closer here and let's say, what about these experiences? First of all, let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Because we use this word a lot. Oh, I just forgive. I think I've forgiven. But you know what? Forgiveness is not, first of all, downplaying the wrong. Forgiveness is not downplaying the wrong. It's not saying Oh, it's no big deal. It's fine. No big deal. In fact, we use this phrase a lot when we are accepting apologies. Someone says, I'm so sorry I did blah, blah, blah. And you say, it's fine. It's no big deal. And sometimes it wasn't. Other times, it's just that we haven't been willing to actually name the wrong. So forgiveness is not downplaying the wrong, but forgiveness is also not moving on. It's also not saying, fine, it's okay, I'm over it, I'm done, I got no time for you anyway. 
I'm not even going to give you another thought. I'm not even going to give that situation another. You don't even mean anything to me, so I'm just moving on. No. Forgiveness is not downplaying the wrong. Forgiveness is not moving on. But forgiveness is also not excusing the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is not saying, oh, well, you know, I don't think they meant it. They were young or they were whatever and fill in the blank. Ah, it's just, it's not making an excuse for the wrongdoer either. All of those three things, downplaying the wrong, moving on, excusing the wrongdoer, all of those things come of making too light of what forgiveness is, right? But, you know, there's also a few things that forgiveness is not that fits under the category of making too much of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is also not reconciliation. Forgiveness is also not, oh, we're going to be best friends again. The truth is, you may never get to that place. And along with that, forgiveness is also not restoration of trust. In fact, counselors have helped us understand there are many situations in which we must either remove the offender or remove ourselves so that they cannot harm us again. There, forgiveness is not the same as saying, okay, I guess I should trust you again. It doesn't mean that. Forgiveness does not mean... So, I hope you can see we've, 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 we've identified things on two ends of the spectrum. We can make too light of forgiveness and say, no big deal, I'm moving on, you didn't really mean it. Or we could make, take forgiveness and sort of make it too much and say, oh, well, if I'm supposed to forgive, I've got to reinstate relationship. I've got to reconcile. I've got to, restore, I've got to trust them again. We've got to be best friends. I've got to name my children after them. No, no, that, that's not yet what it means. So what is it? The Greek in this passage here in Ephesians is charisomai. And for those of you that have heard these phrases, you say, wait a minute, did you say charis? Yes. In this word, charisomai is this smaller Greek word that maybe some of you have heard called charis. And charis very often uh, is used to say, well, grace. Charis means grace. It does. But even simpler than that, charis simply means gift. And so forgiveness, even in our English word, has the word give in it. It's meant to have those echoes. And in a very real way, as I, was, as I was studying it this week, one of the layers of meaning of the word forgiveness or forgive is to give graciously, is to give to someone, to give graciously. But the second layer of meaning is to cancel a debt. So one is a surplus and the other is to erase the deficit. One is to give graciously. Another layer of meaning is to say, I recognize the deficit, but I'm going to cancel it. Does that make sense? And then the third layer kind of puts the two together. It's to show yourself gracious by forgiving another person. Now, if we were to kind of just, let's put all these shades together and say, what does it look like? Forgiveness then is canceling someone's debt in order to give them something that is better than what they deserve. You're giving them something better than what they deserve and canceling their debt. And in doing that, you've shown graciousness. You've given them the gift of canceling their debt. Given them the gift of treating them better than they deserve. Forgiveness, it's often said, is a decision. But actually, forgiveness is not purely a decision. I want to say this morning that forgiveness 
begins with a decision, but often involves a long journey. I mean, I don't know many people who say, well, you know what, I just made up my mind. I decided I'm going to let it go. (laughs) It's over, done, maybe. But for many of us, it begins with that decision, but it plays out in a longer process. And here's the qualifying phrase again, that it plays out in a process that may or may not end in full reconciliation and restoration of trust. Some of you have shelved the need to forgive because you know the relationship will never be restored. Some of you have said, you know what, that relationship will never be made right. She will never see things differently. He will never understand the way that they made me feel. They will never, da 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 And so because there's no possibility of restoration of trust or even reconciliation, you've decided to not even take that first step of forgiveness. Church, what, the reason I'm distinguishing the two things this morning is to, to help you see that whether or not the process ends up in restoration, we must take this first move of forgiveness. We must. We're not responsible for what happens fully to the rest of the relationship. We don't know. Sometimes it's beyond our control. The person has moved away, moved on, died, whatever the situation may be. You may not be able to really get... But that doesn't mean you can just shelve the incident and say, I don't need to even think about forgiving them. Actually, Christ calls us to think of that moment. Begin here. Begin with the moment when we can turn toward them. So how does forgiveness work? Well, <laughs> one of the first signs that you can know that you, there needs to be some forgiveness that takes place in your life is how you respond or feel when the person's name comes up. Someone brings up the other person and you're like, hmm, yeah, hmm. and you're trying not to say anything, you know. Like the Dowager Countess in Downton Abbey. <laughs> Other times, it's how you respond when someone praises that person. They start saying good things about them, and you can't help but be like, well, I mean, not, that's probably true, but... And then you add this little story in there, and you say, well, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, they're not all what you think. <laughs> just saying, hashtag just saying... that's when you know, you know, I think there's something in my heart here. I think there's something going on here. I I didn't realize it, but I I think there's something there. It's worth looking at it. And so when you discover that there's something there, the next step then is to begin to name the wrong. To begin to name the wrong. Philosopher Nicholas Walterstuff, he taught at Yale for many years. He's a believer, loves the Lord. He talks about justice as treating a person according to the way that they are worth, what they are worth. So as Christians, there's a baseline of worth, the, the image of God, but there's often other layers of worth based on what society has set up. So if you do X amount of work, your worth is this. When your boss says this is what he was going to pay you and then he doesn't, you have been wronged. Okay, so we have to be able to name those wrongs. Now, this is particularly important because in our day, we don't take the trouble to name the wrong. We just get offended. I'm just, I don't know, I just found that so offensive. Well, did they actually wrong you? No, but I'm just offended. 
I'm just offended that Chick-fil-A doesn't serve breakfast on Sundays or any food on Sundays. That's discrimination. What? what? Are you, did they wrong you? Did, they, did you deserve? The, well, no. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's a difference here. We don't want to be petty and false about our sense of offendedness, but we also want to be accurate about how we name it. When you rightly deserve certain kind of treatment and you are not getting it, you can name that wrong with a little bit more precision. You can say, you know what? I was supposed to be paid this. I was not. I was promised this. It was not given. I, my roommate was supposed to pay uh, the bills. She did not. You can begin to say, I can name the wrong in the situation. That's very important. The next level of this, of how forgiveness works, is a bit trickier. So you discern what's in your heart, you name the wrong, but this third step is more, it's less, uh, it's less general, you can't generalize it very easily. And it's the question of, do I go to them or not? So our gospel reading is from Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is famous for beginning with Jesus saying, when your brother has sinned against you, go to him. Tell him that he's sinned against you. Name the, their wrong to that person. But I understand that there are some situations I, I, I've... I've listened to you, I've lived in my own relational challenges enough to know that there are some situations where going to them to name the wrong is only going to create more friction. They're going to wrong you again by saying, how dare you, I never did such and such. You're like, okay, okay, I can't, They're not, we're not getting, you know. So I want, to be, I want to be pastoral in saying that there's particularities of how to decide whether you go to them with it or not. But do you know there is a way to name the wrong and, and flesh it out even if you don't go to them? Several years ago, I was in a setting with a group of other people and counselors had come in to help walk us through a situation which I didn't really want to take the trouble to name the wrong. I wanted to just say, it's fine, it's a mess, blah, whatever, moving on. And they encouraged us to stop and to name the wrong about the situation. And the assignment that we were all given was to go back and write a letter. And then they said, you never actually have to send this letter. I thought, okay, here we go. <laughs> now, you, you, may, you may want to, you know, disconnect your computer from Wi-Fi so you don't accidentally, like, upload it. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize it was my Facebook status, you know. <laughs> You might want to go old school, pen and paper, and you can you know, burn it in the fire. But I, I remember Holly and I doing this, sitting down, writing. We each wrote kind of our own letter. We read it out loud to one another. Very emotional moment about this other person. So, okay, we're not going to send this letter. There's no need to send this letter. In fact, what is going to be said has been said. And it was the kind of thing where there was, there wasn't after it, years after it, has not been a reconciliation of relationship and, and, and not even a restoration of trust. But there's nothing in our hearts anymore to this person. There's nothing in our hearts anymore. We've named, I love how N.T. Wright says it, he said, name it and shame it. You name the wrong, you shame it as saying it was wrong. This was not okay. And it cost us in these ways. And then you take the letter and you burn it. And you say, I, I, I'm not going to hang on to that. 
Because at its core, forgiveness is essentially saying you don't owe me anymore. You don't owe me anymore. But you can't cancel a debt that you haven't identified. You have to identify the debt and then say, and now I cancel it. I'm naming it, shaming it, and releasing you of payment for it. You don't owe it. You don't owe me. If you're a visual person, you can visualize the scales, you know, the old school balancing scales. Every time you're wronged, you put another weight, another brick on the one side of the scale and it starts to tip. So, oh, they really owe me. Wow, they really owe me. And you know what happens? This is how unforgiveness works. The more those scales tip, the more you actually are putting them in a lower status, lower social rank, unofficial social rank to you. You're kind of seeing yourself with a kind of moral superiority, and this other person is lower and lower and lower. You little scumbag. <laughs> and just add another brick. There it is. You're not only saying you owe me, but you're also saying you're below me. You owe me, and you're below me. And forgiveness is, let's take those bricks off. You don't owe me. Unforgiveness tends to make us look down on the person that has wronged us. How, how, is, how is this kind of forgiveness even possible? There's a couple of letters from the first and second centuries that are just fascinating. One is from a Roman civil servant named Pliny, Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger held just about the highest social, uh, civil servant ranking that you could get in the empire before you know, getting up to, to emperor status. And he wrote a lot of letters. In fact, if you're a student of church, Christian church history, you'll know that one of Pliny's letters gives us a lot of insight into how early Christians worshipped. Pliny's letters have, have been remarkably insightful. One of his letters is to a man named Sabinius. Sabinius, now... In the early centuries, especially in the Roman Empire, social rank was a really big deal. Everyone was aware of it, okay? Everyone was aware of it. So Pliny is the highest ranking dude in this, in this uh, situation. And then Sabinius is below him, sort of a wealthy guy, but, but not any official rank. And then you have this other unnamed person who is a freedman. Now, a freedman in the first and second century was a person who was a slave, but was no longer a slave, but essentially kept living through life as though he were a slave. Okay, there's institutionalized rank and class that's so embedded in that even though he's technically free, he's not really free. And you're like, that sounds like my job. Okay, anyway, so Pliny, Sabinius, and then this other person, the freedman. Now listen to parts of this letter. This is Pliny writing. You told me you had been angry with a freedman of yours. He's obviously done something wrong. And now he's come to see me. He's making an appeal to the highest level. He threw himself at my feet and clung on to me as though I were you. He wept a lot. He asked for a lot, though he also kept quiet about a lot too. To sum it up, he made me believe that he was genuinely sorry. Now pay attention to what is being asked for and the reason it's being asked. To sum it up, he made me believe he was genuinely sorry. I think he's a changed character because he really does feel that he did wrong. Now, I should point out it was N.T. Wright, a, a, a Brit, who translated this into English. So you're going to hear some phrases that are particularly English. Yes, 
Yes, I know that you are angry, and I know too that you have a right to be angry, but mercy earns most praise when anger is fully justified. What a great Roman proverb. Mercy is most praise, earns most praise when the anger is fully justified. Here's Pliny kind of saying, be the better person here. And then he says, once you have loved this fellow, and I hope you will love him again for the moment, it's enough if you let yourself be placated. You can always be angry again if he deserves it. I love it. All that wrath you've been storing up, don't throw it away. You may still need it. If he screws up again, just let him have it. And you'll have all the more reason if you've been placated now. And then he says, look, he's young. He's in tears. You have a kind heart. Make all of that count. Pliny is a master manipulator. And this is my favorite part. Don't torture him, and don't torture yourself either. Anger is always a torture for a soft heart like yours. Oh, my. I'm afraid it will look as though I'm putting pressure on you. What would give you that idea, Pliny? Not simply making a request, but I'm going to do it anyway, and all the more fully and thoroughly because I've given him a sharp and severe talking to. Well, thank you, Pliny. And I've warned him clearly that I won't make such a request again. I'm not going to give him another chance. This was because he needed a good fright, and I said it to him rather than to you because it's just possible that I shall make another request and receive it too. Now Pliny's full-on pulling rank. Now he's saying, I'm basically asking you to do this. And it's appropriate for me to ask and for you to grant. Yours sincerely, Pliny. A couple things to note. What's being asked? The request here is a very simple request. Have mercy. Not all that radical. Just eh, let him off. Don't punish him. The reasons are very familiar to us. Written 1,900 years ago, same reasons that we hear again today. Classic reason number one, the excuse. He was young. He's a changed man. Classic reason number two, the remorse. He's really sorry. He wept. He clung to my feet. He feels really bad. Classic reason number three, the self-help reason. Anger is too great a burden for a kind heart like yours. Listen, guys. I know there's something true about what we say in church that, that unforgiveness actually punishes you. That's true. But do you know that's still not yet the gospel? That's daytime talk shows. Daytime talk shows will tell you, don't, don't, don't let unforgiveness stay in your heart because that's going to keep you a prisoner. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's still not the gospel yet. That's still plenty. That's still good Roman common sense. You have a tender heart, and anger is going to be a bur- too much of a burden on your heart. That's the self-help. And then finally, the condition. Hey, if he does it again, let him have it. The conditional. None of this is radical. A good secular humanist could, could share these same reasons. None of this is new to the world. It's been, it's been the logic of Western relationships for a couple thousand years. It's not groundbreaking. 30 or 40 years before Pliny, there was a letter that was groundbreaking. It's a letter from Paul, the apostle. He's writing to Philemon, who's one of his converts. And he's writing to Philemon, Paul the apostle, Philemon the believer, picture the layers here, and he's writing about a guy named Onesimus, who was a slave and then ran away. Not a freed person, 
but a runaway. And this is some of what Paul says. Although I have considerable boldness in the Messiah to command you to do the right thing, I prefer to appeal on the basis of love. Right off the bat, Paul's saying, I'm not just using rhetoric or manipulation or rank. I'm using the basis of love. What kind of love, Paul? He keeps going. Seeing as I am, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of the Messiah Jesus, I appeal to you about my child, your child, the runaway slave. Yes, my child, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Onesimus, although his name means useful, there was a time when he was useless to you. Now, however, he is useful both to me and to you. And then Paul goes on. He says, look at it like this. Maybe this is the reason he was separated from you for a little while, so that you could have him back forever, not as a slave, Paul says, much more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Beloved especially to me, but how much more to you, both as part of your household and in the Lord. And then here is the kicker of the whole letter. Paul says, so, if you count me as a partner, receive him as though he were me. Receive him as though he were me. Paul saying, put me and Onesimus, me the apostle and Onesimus the runaway, put us on the same level. Receive him as you'd receive me. And then he says, and if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, put that down on my account. Put it on my tab. What? Everything that he owes, you're going to say you owe? This is me, Paul, writing with my own hand. I'll pay you back. Yes, brother, let me have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. The request that Paul is making is far more radical than Pliny's. It's not be kind, take the guy back, don't whoop him too much. Paul's request is receive him as you receive me. How could I do that? Philemon's thinking, Paul, you don't get it. How can I do that? You know what's so radical about this request? Pliny's letter ends and everybody gets to stay in their same social rank. He's still the high up dude. Sabinius is still the middle management guy. And the freedman is still a freedman who's not really that free. But Paul's letter the whole thing is turned upside down. The end of Paul's, uh, at the end of Philemon, you're thinking, wait a minute, you're the apostle, but you're saying you're going to pay the tab for the runaway? And then you're saying, receive the runaway like he's you. Y- you just put everybody on the same ground. That's right. Because gospel forgiveness is not just balancing the scales, it's leveling the ground. It's not just balancing the scales and saying, okay, we've made it all right now. The kind of radical forgiveness the gospel invites us into says, level the ground. See that before Christ the Messiah, we all stand here. What's Paul's reason for this? Why does he live this way? Why would he say, make his debt my debt. What kind of action is this? Ephesians 4, back to our New Testament reading, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If there were no chapter or verse markings, you would go on and read. Therefore, maybe even, and as you do that, 
because you have done that, because you have forgiven as one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul knows that forgiveness is how we embody the gospel to the world. Paul's saying, listen, Philemon, I am going to embody this to you because this is how everyone else gets to see how the gospel works. Put it on my account. What does he owe you? I owe it to you now. Treat him as me and me as him. What? Paul, what, what is that? That's the embodiment of the gospel. And you know what I can't help but think? I want to know who embodied this to Paul. Who embodied this to Paul? How did Paul learn this? I mean, it's so radical that N.C. Wright, the the New Testament scholar who, who compares these two letters, he says, look, it wouldn't be an exaggeration, much of an exaggeration to say that if we didn't have any other documents about the early Christians except for the letter to Philemon, it would be enough to say something radical has entered the world. Something explosive has been introduced into society and relationships. If all we had was Philemon, it would be enough to say, what is going on? This isn't the Greek sense of justice. This isn't the Roman sense of order. And, and, and who came up with this idea? Oh, oh, it's people who saw Christ the crucified. How did Paul see it? Acts 7 tells us the story of Paul when he was younger. Paul when he still had a different name, when his name was Saul. And Saul, who was not yet Paul, was a Pharisee of Pharisees, proud of his own righteousness, proud of his moral superiority, proud of the way that he could look down on others. And it says that these people had gathered to stone a young man named Stephen. Stephen, this young man who was full of love for Jesus. And it says that the people who came to stone Stephen laid their cloaks at Saul's feet. We don't know exactly what the symbolic action means, but at the very least, it means that Saul was part of this. And Stephen, beaten, bloodied, and bruised, looks up to heaven and says, Lord, do not count their sins against them. Stephen embodied the gospel to young Paul. He's sitting there watching this and saying, yeah, we did the right thing, Stephen. And this face of the martyr says, Lord, don't count their sins against them. And that explosive agent got into Saul. And then when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and he changed his name to Paul, that seed began to explode inside of him and change everything about the way he understood the world. This was a Paul who would eventually write, there's no more Greek or Jew or or slave or free. We're all level before Christ. This was a Paul who would then write to Philemon and say, Philemon, somebody embodied this forgiveness to me. And now I want to say to you, whatever Onesimus has done, I got it. I'll pay for it. What is it? I'll pick it up. Somebody did that for Paul. Church, when you go out into the world and you begin to embody this kind of forgiveness to others, 
you have introduced something radical and explosive into a world that is obsessed with rights and selfishness and who owes me what. And you've said, I, I'm introducing a different way of seeing. Ultimately, forgiveness says, you don't owe me because Jesus paid it all. How was Stephen able to say, Lord, don't count it against them? Because it was Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The only way we can say, you don't owe me anymore, is because Jesus said, put it on my account. What is it? What is wrong in the world? Put it on my account. You guys, the forgiveness of God to us, church, was not a cheap forgiveness. It was not God saying, eh, it's no big deal. Let's just move on. Forget it. That thing in the garden, Adam, Eve, put it behind us. Let's move on. And when you think of all that God sees in the world, the violence, the hatred, the way that we have wronged one another and wronged Him. God doesn't ignore the wrong or minimize it. God names it. He calls it sin. And He says that the wages of this sin is truly death. But then He says, now let me take it. Now put it on me. Put that sin on me. Put that wrongdoing on me. I'll not only take the wrong, I'll take the penalty for the wrong. And dying on the cross, the Son of God prayed, Father, forgive them. You see, friends, ultimately this kind of forgiveness is possible when we truly believe that Jesus paid it all. We no longer have to go and collect. Hey, 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 you are. You don't have to deny that they did wrong, but you can say, I don't need to collect because he paid it all. He paid it all. I was talking with a friend who a, 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 teaches at the Air Force Academy. He's a philosophy, psychology guy. And he said, Glenn, he said, emotions are a way of perception, a form of perception. The things that we feel affect the way that we see. And he said, anger is an emotion that makes us perceive the other as the wrongdoer. And he's like, part of that is healthy. Initially, when anger comes up, it's correct. It's healthy. It's supposed to say, ah, I've been wronged, and you're the wrongdoer. Anger's good. But when you hang on to that emotion, that's the only way you see them. You're the wrongdoer. You're the wrongdoer. You're the wrongdoer. And Paul invites us, the gospel, Christ himself, invites us to take up a different lens and says, See them as one for whom Christ died. See them as one for whom Christ died. You don't have to pretend that they didn't wrong you, but see them as one for whom Christ died.